continue on in Second Peter. We'll be continuing on for a month or two or three, maybe four, who knows, uh, working our way uh, through this, a grounded faith. And we're looking here at the idea of being equipped is what Peter is dealing with. I don't want us to lose sight of the context. It's a book of warning, a book of caution, as the church in Asia Minor is now going to face uh, persecution from false teachers, from lies, from deception. And so Peter is, is addressing that. And so we move from his introduction and some of his remarks centering on our faith and our salvation and, and the importance of that. Now he's moving to this idea of being equipped uh, in our faith. Uh, it was about 15 years ago, I remember uh, I was starting to present uh, new plants to major retailers. And so uh, around that time, an opportunity came up where I and a colleague uh, were invited to a plant expo in Ventura Beach, California, on the other side of the country. Uh, the idea was that instead of showing pictures of plants, instead of us talking about plants, we would show up in California with live plants. And so different suppliers to Lowe's hardware stores were coming to this location, and we would be there with all of our new pretty plants in vivo, right? They're alive, they're there, they could touch, hold them. And the idea was we would have a mini convention there in California and get to talk one-on-one -on -one, uh, with the customers. It was an exciting chance to showcase what we had been working on, engaging one-on-one -on -one with who we'd sell to. It was an opportunity for us and about 10 other companies. Uh, the other companies a little more established than we were. And so I remember we packed up product in Virginia and arranged for it to be shipped across the country. We had a full pallet of, of plants boxed up, ready to be shown off. We timed it, we thought, perfectly. Uh, we wanted the plants to show up early enough, uh, but not too early. You put plants in a box, it's dark, they don't last forever. And so we were trying to make sure that the plants wouldn't show up at a hotel and then just sit there and be, be destroyed. And so we had this all worked out well. Uh, Remy, which was my colleague, was coming from Holland bringing banners and pictures because, of course, you still bring banners and pictures uh, when you're doing that. And, and so we got in a plane in Dallas, flew over to California with those banners and pictures, expecting to unload and unbox our new plants, touch them up a bit, make them look as nice as they could, and then talk about real live products face-to-face -face with customers. Uh, lo and behold, I'm sure you can imagine, uh, there was no pallets of plants awaiting our arrival. Um, so while the other 10 companies were fulfilling what they were supposed to do with tons of live product, uh, Remy and I were positioning banners, um, which was not what we were supposed to be doing. And we were looking around and already with 10 other companies looking at you because seven of them asked, where are your plants? And uh, we're like, we're, they're coming. Um, we know they're not coming, but they're coming. That's what we kept saying. Um, and so we started feeling awkward because you, you feel like you're just an incompetent moron at that moment. Um, you can blame anyone else, but you're the one staring at, at this. Uh, that awkwardness was nothing compared to the awkwardness of the next day. When everyone started walking around and out of 11 companies, there was one 20-something-year-old, uh, one Dutch guy, and I just pretended I couldn't speak English at this point because there's just no point uh, trying to. But there we are at a show where you're supposed to be handing people plants and letting them touch it, talk about it, feel it, see it. We're with pop-up banners on the floor talking about plants again. And I will never forget that feeling. I have a paranoia now. If we're supposed to show up with live products somewhere, I almost want to just fly with it, travel with it, 
I don't go that far, but I almost want to do that to get it there. Because when you stand there at a, and, and again, I'm in my 20s, uh, this is an opportunity of a lifetime here, and you realize you've blown it. Um, we have no plants, and when you're at a show where you're supposed to have plants and you don't have plants, you have no confidence, you have no assurance. I remember the, the night before and then the day lived up to its horrible expectations. I said, I put here, we had the opportunity that day to look like colossal fools standing with pretty banners at a show designed for people to handle and see live plants. Uh, just to finish the story, the plants arrived the next day, um, which is just a massive, a day short, a day and a dollar short on that one. Uh, this is the reality though. And the whole point of that illustration, we were not equipped for the task at hand. We lacked the resources and therefore could expect no real results. Every plant we talked about went nowhere. Why? We were at a show where you're supposed to bring plants. You were supposed to have a resource and we didn't have it. And that whole idea or the concept of being equipped is where Peter turns our attention as we continue preparing to confront the deception and manipulation of false teachers. As we confront the lies told by this world and in this life, Peter is now going to prod the churches to respond, to act upon their redemption, because to do nothing equals being unequipped for the Christian life, unequipped for existence as a child of God, and we're called to be equipped. Now, I want us to remember where we came from. We don't want to just walk from what Peter has said. As Peter stated at the beginning of verse, uh, at the letter in verse 3, he said this, that God's divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We knew that from the start, that God is going to enable us to do this, and that we are partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But Peter now moves to this idea that we're not to stand idly by expecting Christian virtue and growth to just accidentally stick to us, that we'll somehow stumble into being equipped, that God is looking for us to passively live as his children here on earth. He begins with this idea of your faith and the equipping that God does, and then he's immediately moving now to you acting upon it. Being equipped, confident, assured in the faith requires action. There are expected Christian, and the first one is responses. If you look at verse 5, just the beginning, he says, and besides this, so right after he finishes saying, God has enabled you. God has, has enabled you. He's given you his divine nature. You have overcome sin. You've overcome death, and he's made that possible. Now, besides this, giving all diligence add to your faith. As Michael Green notes, he says, the grace of God demands as it enables. It demands of us effort to put forth effort in our Christian walk. We are to bring into this relationship alongside what God has done every ounce of determination we can muster. And what he's saying is we're called to build upon the foundation of our faith. We're called to construct on our salvation that complete and only trust in Christ for redemption, which heads the list. Add to your faith. So he's talked about faith. He's talked about the grounding foundational aspect of salvation, and that is what we are to build upon. But we, we and Peter makes abundantly clear that it is no casual, if the mood suits you, hobby sort of building or adding. This is not 
hey, if you get around to it, if you have time, if tucked into your life and schedule, if you could go ahead and start working on your Christian life a little bit, keep developing yourself. It's not this casual conversation. Instead, he uses the words, make every effort. Show all that make every effort to supplement. It is to be done with, and the word we have is diligence, a word in Greek that speaks of intense effort. So we need to remove from our mind the casual engagement with our faith, the idea that we'll build on our faith when we have time, when we have a minute here or a minute there, when we can grab five minutes, we'll read some of the Bible and we'll maybe grow in our faith. And, and, and Peter is immediately grabbing, quote unquote, the face of the church and saying, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, do it with diligence. The difference between our casual engagement and growing when we can and what Peter is, is talking about would, would probably best describe with how I work out and how an Olympic athlete works out. I work out, maybe. That would be the biggest word I use for that. And when I work out, I'm thinking about quitting the whole time I'm working out. Um, and then I actually think about while working out how I never want to do this again. There's got to be a better way Maybe there's a surgery. Maybe there's a pill. I don't know. Something's got to be better than this. That's how we oftentimes view growing in the, in the faith. And Peter says, actually, I want you to train like you're an Olympic athlete. You're training with intensity. And that's, that's the difference in effort I want us to, to recognize. That's what he's trying to say. Is this not that you process it or think once in a while, but you are. You're waking up early to do this. We are called to bring every ounce of zeal and passion to the task at hand of being equipped in Christ. Everything that you are is brought to bear in making every effort or with all diligence, giving all diligence. It is a strong, passionate, and I think a critical word, urgent effort. The Olympic athlete knows that skipping a day equals failure. I think skipping a day means I'll start tomorrow. That's why I never diet. It's always tomorrow. I'm going to work out. We, we see casual, and Peter says intensity, giving all diligence, not some, not most, everything. Diligent to supply, and that is the connotation of the Greek word translated ad there, ad Sounds like we bring something extra to the table that's needed to supplement our faith when in reality we're supplying to the faith or we're building onto the faith. It's the supplement there. Uh, the history of that Greek word actually tells the full story of what we're called to do. Uh, the word add or supplement translates a Greek word that comes from choregos, which really meant, because that doesn't mean anything, the leader of a chorus. And, and this is where it comes from. Greece was known for great plays, dramas, tragedies, comedies, all those things. And so some of the best playwrights would put on their plays in the big cities. And, and it became, this is a focal event for the city. This is critical. It would take place during a religious festival. So it was tied to what they believed in, which was pagan mythology. And these plays would come. Uh, for instance, I think in one city, they put on eight plays. It was like two dramas, one tragedy, five comedies, however it worked out. Now, every one of these plays, so this famous playwright comes and has written this play, and it's all ready to be performed uh, in the city at this festival. This is a huge deal. Every one of these needed a choir singing a chorus. That was not supplied by the playwright. That wasn't 
his job. Instead, there were citizens who voluntarily took on the expense of these choruses. They, and they said they were extremely expensive. So they would spend all the money and effort to gather them. So now these citizens are here, wealthy citizens that say, we want our city to have this. And so they will now spend the money for the equipment. They also engage personally in training the chorus how to sing. So it's not just I pay and someone else does it. Instead, what it, what it meant was citizens would come together, expend funds and efforts to gather them, train them, and equip them. And then these plays were put on for the city. And the whole reason these citizens did this was they never were paid back for this ever. Their effort and their expense, the reward they saw was honor for their city. It was out of love for their city that they would do this. And that's what that word means that we have add. Do what a choir master does. And the choir master is not a professional choir master. It's actually a citizen who spends his own money and effort and time to make this ready for it. So as you work your way into what Peter is talking about, he's saying this to the churches in Asia Minor, supply to your faith. He means lavishly pour out everything that is necessary for a noble performance. Now he's not talking about being a performer or being a fraud. What he's saying is you're to add and the way you add is you are expending significant finances and significant effort so that you can now supplement or grow in your faith. It's worthy of everything. It, mean, it meant to equip your soul richly with the resources needed to live a truly godly life. We are to hold nothing back, is what Peter is saying. Nothing should be reserved. Our time is not our own. Our finances are not our own. Our hobbies are not our own. They're to all be used in pursuit of the resources needed to grow and discern in our faith. And the call is don't fall into the error of passivity. Don't sit back in your Christian walk and say, well, we'll see where this takes me. Let's see how the day moves. When I wake up, I'm not sitting back, but instead engaging the day to say, what can I do to grow in my faith? Uh, do not fall into the error of casualness or secondary priority regarding growth and development in your life as a Christian. So as Peter transitions from the start to now this, this segment about what we're to do to be equipped, he starts with this idea of our response, and our response are all active verbs. To confront the false teachers and the deception of this life, and Satan requires us to urgently and passionately supply, to literally trip over ourselves for the privilege of participating in our faith, we're called to grow from our salvation in the virtues expected of the believer. That is the Christian response. As we are redeemed, this response we're to give, and Peter puts it in light of this warning. So there's an intensity that comes with this. He's elevated, hey, you're, you're, you know you have to face lies and deception and deceit. So your response needs to be this very active, engaged Christian response, seeking to obtain now the resources. That's 5b through 7. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity, which is agape love. 
We must keep in mind, and I want us to come all the way back, that we are capable of these attributes. We are, verse 3 and 4, enabled in Christ to have these resources, enabled by him to do this. But within that enabling comes a responsibility of action, of diligence. And so from the amazing foundation of faith, salvation, our justification, we are to actively journey in the process of sanctification. And that's what Peter is moving to. In other words, you are not able to sit as a stagnant believer, numb to this, and he actually ends this, and and that's the weight of the action to us or the implication. He says, if you don't have these resources, you might as well be an unbeliever in how you'll respond. You'll be so blind, uh, you won't be able to see far away. You're nearsighted, you might as well be impaired completely. So he says that without them, you're not able to accomplish anything. Not that you can do something, you can do nothing. And we'll, we'll touch on that. But we're called to move forward actively in the process of sanctification. That is what these resources are, so that we are assured in our faith and prepared to face the deception and manipulation of false teachers and this world. We are prepared to be solid in and for Christ, grounded in him, and serving him, that's what we need as we add these resources. So add to your faith virtue. And here is basic Christian excellence, practicing your faith in everyday real life. It's, it's a, the idea would be like of a moral energy and a live living faith. As you handle the questions of life, whether you sell, design, negotiate, manage, build, you name it, whatever you do, your identity as God's child comes shining through in obvious detail. Your actions, and I'm putting it in the work realm, so your work bears the stamp of God's standard because what you do shows Christian excellence. Because I know it's, and I do this mentally too, we have our Christian life and then we say, hey, at some point you got, you got to work. You have to do your job. How does our faith come into our job when you're an engineer, because at some point, if you're an engineer and you're designing a bridge, you better make a bridge that people can drive over. Well, it's going to be seen in our virtue and our excellence. To know of a lazy Christian, what a horrible thing, uh, and actually an oxymoronic statement. As a Christian, you should never be lazy. You should never be slovenly in your work. Why? Because as we engage everyday life, our faith, our identity as God's children should be evident in what we do because our work ultimately should glorify our Savior. And so as we start out in life, and and he's addressing because all these people would be working other jobs, right? They're, They're all existing in society, making it, feeding their families. And so from there, he says, let's start with this idea of virtue and everything you do, and to virtue, add knowledge. Now here is truth understood and applied It is the fruit gained from diligent study and experience. So he moves from our activity in life to now, what are we doing to know more about Christ and know more about the faith? And so this is our minds accurately enlightened with the truth of Scripture and involves effort to pursue Scripture and to think upon it. I I throw this question out, and, and it's not because you can walk around all day long pondering verses. I get that. But let's ask a different way. Do you ever ponder verses during the day? Do you ever think about God during the day? Do you ever think about how your work could honor God during the day? How your response may 
maybe should be different because you are a believer and so you change that response. You alter, shockingly, who you are because you are a child of God. And so I can easily say, well, that's just who I am. Get used to it. Yeah, well, that that is who I am, a very sinful, despicable being. And so as God's child, I start changing who I am and how I respond. I still do my work, but now I do it because and as a child of God. And so that's possible in the knowledge of him. It's knowing his truth and applying his truth. And so the question kind of pops in, do you ever think about his truth during the day? Do you ever, in, in, the, in the execution of your life, ever have Scripture connect to it? You will always be distant from applying Christ to your life if you never think about what he said when you're living your life, when you're doing what you do. And to that knowledge, he says, add temperance. And the idea of temperance is discipline or self-control. The word literally means holding oneself in. So self-control kind of grabs that perfectly. This virtue combats the false teaching that you could let desire run rampant physically speaking, because it had no effect on your soul. And so one of the things that, that, that Greek philosophy was set up to do was basically give people permission to do whatever wickedness they want to do, which looks a lot like our society, right? Well, if it makes you feel good, if that's who you are, if that's what you want. See, that, that, that rhetoric comes out. So nothing new under the sun. The Greeks were, were really working hard to be both religious and do whatever they felt like doing. And so Peter says, no, you need to have self-control. We're called to bring those desires into submission to God's will, not from our own power, though, not as a Stoic, because there was then people in the Greek community who said, I will in my own power grab hold of my desires and keep them contained, which will only set you up for failure ultimately. But we are in his power to exercise self-control, building from excellence down to knowledge to this idea of containing those desires as we understand what God's Word says. And I hope you can understand what will give you the practical ability to contain whatever you want to do mentality is the knowledge of God's Word. As that permeates your every day, that will then help you or cause you to be self-controlled. And then so to self-control, it says, add this word patience. This is steadfastness, or another word is perseverance. And it's a difficult word in Greek. It is always much bigger in this context. It's much bigger than any English word we can give it. And so some of the nuance of it is seeing the big picture of God's plan, seeing beyond this world's pressure to the reality of eternity, and being able to wait eagerly for it and work and serve God in light of it. So it is endurance in doing what is right, no matter how much pressure is brought to bear. So it's not that you grin and bear it. It's actually a perspective on pressure and trials that says, I will see beyond this to eternity, and in light of eternity, I will live through this, not I'll just tense up and get through this point of life. Uh, It's real patience. And to perseverance, that patience under pressure, he says, add godliness. And here is a spirit of reverence. This is worship, as we talked about last week, worship and active obedience. And it's deferring to God's right in all matters. You ever find yourself arguing with God in your head? I'm sure you don't do it out loud. About who gets to do what? Who has the right over your time and who has the right and say? And I'm not talking about uh, somebody else in, in the church telling you what you should do with your time. I'm talking about that real 
arguing with God over who has the right to your life. And so as you, you look at this, as one writer notes, it is true religion that properly honors and adores God. And, and all of these are of high value. This one is, is something to note. Uh, godliness is something that will be exercised for eternity. We will forever be honoring and reverencing God. We will forever be submitting to his right. Now, in eternity, we won't have the battle of our own sinful desire against us, but the reality is godliness permeates all of eternity. And so to true religion or godliness, he says, add brotherly kindness. And this is a family-type love, brotherly affection shown to those in Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and says, we focus on worshiping God, godliness, we naturally respond to others in Christ with love. And then I'm always, when I think about that, I'm like, oof, I'm not so natural responding in love, which should tell me that I lack true godliness. Because true godliness will have you loving the church and responding that way. The greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, right? Love your neighbor. True faith will be seen in our love for the church. So when you don't love the church, you automatically know that you have a wrestling with godliness, with true reverence to God. When I talk to someone who says, well, I would go to church, but it's filled with hypocrites. I can't stand the church. You struggle with godliness. That's your issue. It's not all the hypocrites in church. You're right. It's full of hypocrites. And the guy speaking at the front guaranteed is going to be a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. We're all sinners. We're all liars. We all struggle. But when someone says, I can't stand the church, it's not the people in the church who are at fault. It's your godliness that's at fault. Because when you truly reverence God, you will end up loving his people. It'll be a, it flows from there. And that love is possible because we're adopting God's love for us. We're to grow in charity, which is that agape love. And, and this is a love that is what like Christ displayed towards us. What kind of love was it? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love he displayed. God so loved the world. That love is not an emotional love. It's a love of the will. It's a love of decision. God decided to love the world. He chose to love the world. He wasn't emotionally moved to do that. He uses a, it's, when I say a higher love, it's just a different understanding of love. It's a selfless love of the will. It doesn't mean the love makes us feel good. That's more actually an other type of love. In, in Greek, there was three. It's not even brotherly love. It goes back to more emotions. But it, it drives us as believers, as we grow with these resources, we are to land at this point of selfless love of the will. So in other words, we make a decision to love the church. We make a decision to serve God and we've removed from our decision-making the emotions that are often attached to it. This world, when it talks about love, is not even getting close to brotherly affection that's listed in Scripture or agape love. It is definitely eros love. It's an emotional uh, response to love. That's, that's what we talk about and hear about. And so we're to land at Christ-like love. I put here, Peter makes it fairly simple for us. It's a straightforward list of resources that must be a part of our lives. And, and I wrote down, and this is important, he's not making suggestions. As I used to hit these lists, and I don't know if you do this, I would pick the ones that I think I can do. Ah, I can handle that one. 
that one looks good. So I'll add these three, and the other ones, well, God will have to find someone else with that personality. This is not personality-based. This is a command from God. This is not a suggestion. To be equipped in the Christian life requires us to be acquiring these resources. You are to be working and growing in all of these, which makes the application also simple. Do you find these things as a part of your life, and do you find that these things are growing in your life? Because we're never going to reach that point where we don't need to grow in it. You know what? I've checked off godliness. I'm good to go. I've adored God enough. I'm there. I, I love the church enough. I'm done. Finished. Have loved it enough. I'm checking out. There's no checking out. You need to have these resources in your life. You need to see them and you need to be growing in them because having or lacking these resources bring distinctive results. And that is verses eight through nine. So he starts with our faith, our salvation, our justification. And then Peter turns and says, and you're enabled now to live the life, verses three and four. But in God's enablement, he is demanding intense effort and action to have the resources growing in sanctification in your life. And now in eight and nine, he gives, I would say, the results or one of the results. He moves from that. As we look next week, we'll be looking at uh, assurance of salvation that is woven to growing in Christ. And then on to what Peter says, because these are so critical and that they'll give you the assurance of your faith, I'm going to keep on reminding you. So next week is going to be this idea of, of what it does for assurance of salvation and then why it's so critical to constantly be thinking about that. So another re- reproof we'll have for ourselves next week is when you start getting sick of hearing about that, then suddenly you realize something's wrong because Peter says we need to constantly be bringing this up. But here are his initial results or response he gives. He says, for if these things be in you and abound, and that gives you an idea, you need to have them and you need to be growing in them. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. And, and really, you would flip that wording in the Greek. You're nearsighted. You might as well be blind. It's more the implication. And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So Peter's making it simple. What are the results? With these resources, you are useful and fruitful for Christ. You're neither barren nor unfruitful. Now, it helps to, to describe this because barren and unfruitful in English are very similar uh, but that's not exactly the connotation there. Being barren is a Greek word meaning idle. And, and this is the connotation behind it. It is that you are inactive or inoperative. You are of no service. That's like the person watching someone frame a house saying, I'm really good at framing, but they're sitting down. I remember being in Nicaragua and there was a guy and he loved to run the teams, but all he did was wipe his head with a towel and sit on a bucket. And then once in a while, I'll tell people what to do. And I remember walking by thinking, you're not much help. And you notice after 90 degree weather and humidity and people are working, their tolerance for this individual kept decreasing. And he wanted a position of leadership. And I'm thinking, you're doing this the wrong way. This isn't going to work. He was idle. And so in the context of building, he was barren in that sense. The word idle or, or fruitless or useless is there. Then when you look at the word being unfruitful meant you were unproductive And I want you to think with me a second. I have these three citrus trees 
that I am slowly killing over three years. I'm, I'm trying to get there. I've lost the tags to these citrus trees. I have a degree in horticulture, which just doesn't help me at all in this situation. <laughs> I shouldn't have slept through that class, I guess. But either way, um, I only know what tree it is when it bears fruit. So I want you to see the connection to being unfruitful. You are unproductive, but then unidentifiable as a believer. So the barren deals with the idleness. It's the, the sitting down and being useless, right? And the unfruitful deals with lack of product, which then connects us to identity. So you are unidentifiable as a believer. But if you have these resources, what he's saying is you are useful. So as you look at your life and to look at it from a positive standpoint, because Satan loves to discourage, as you look at your life and you see these things in there and you see that you're growing in them or trying to grow in them, Peter gives you a promise that you are neither idle, you are, you are useful to God, but you might beat yourself up and say, no, I'm not because I'm not as, as strong in the faith as this person. I don't have as much knowledge here. or I have so much to, to grow in or I, I got angry in this situation, so I'm lacking. And Peter gives you a promise. If these resources are in your life, if you see this as part of your life and growing, then you are promised the fact that you are useful and fruitful. And so you are now active and identifiable as a child of God. And then you recognize that that identity and service is seen in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which goes all the way back to that, that knowledge we talked about last week, not the generic knowledge, but the detailed knowledge. And so productivity in identity in line with the precise and correct knowledge of Jesus. So you are now doctrinally or deeply fruitful and useful. And that's a promise he gives as we look at equipping ourselves with these resources, because Satan will buffet a growing believer to try to make them think they're not good enough, or not ready to be useful. We are ready to be useful and are fruitful and productive if you see these resources. You don't have to second guess what's there. God has enabled you. And, oh, I don't have as much education. I haven't read as much. It doesn't matter. You're already useful. So let's, let's be useful. Let's act. You're able to move forward. Yet without these resources, you are short-sighted. So short-sighted as a believer, you act or respond like a blind unbeliever. One translation states it this way, get the order a little different, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Obviously, when we read it the other way, it flips, you're blind, you are really nearsighted. But the implication in Greek and the idea and why it's flipped in some translations and others is because the Greek will emphasize the ultimate end of being blind without saying you're blind and then you're nearsighted, right? The idea is you're as a believer, so you know he's speaking to Christians, you're so nearsighted that you might as well be blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You may think you can see spiritually, but are so impaired, you might as well be an unbeliever. You are someone, as one writer notes, who is unable to discern his true spiritual condition. And this, again, I don't want this to be used in your life to beat yourself up. But I'd like to remind you how Paul described himself. He described himself as the chief of sinners. He's not showing fake humility. Actually, he's demonstrating how much sight he has as a believer. He understands that he's always redeemed by God. 
that he has not earned anything, that if he's to investigate his life, he sees himself as the chief of sinners. When you bump into a Christian who feels really good about themselves, that's a nearsighted Christian. Because they don't see themselves right. And so that person who has lost sight of the magnitude of salvation, if you go all the way back, when we lose sight of the magnitude of salvation of our faith, we are guaranteed ultimate deception. We will be tricked in the end. I want us to pause a moment, and I want to walk through what it means to be a nearsighted believer. I just want you to walk through the implications with me, because sometimes we see it, but we don't connect to it. Because if you, as a believer, lack the needed resources, you may feel fine and justified in your life. You, you feel good. Spiritually, you feel fine. You cannot see your true nature and attitude, so you feel zero compulsion to alter sin patterns or habits. So you lack these resources, and the nearsightedness in you will result in feeling fine about it. And now, some of you may be thinking right now, that sounds wonderful. Here I am, saved and secured with no conviction in sight. No prodding for change. I'll live my life how I want, and my ticket is punched for heaven. That is that mentality that comes in, and that is a response of a nearsighted believer. That represents quite the sad cycle of thinking, and it doesn't result in any spiritual benefit because you lack the perspective of and desire for your Savior. Therefore, your life constantly points in the wrong direction. Your witness and identity as one of God's own only confuses those who know, uh, those you know and love. It never will ultimately point them to Christ. And this is the, the kicker when you live nearsighted. Your life is spiritual deception. That's the nuts and bolts of not having these resources. It's never a consequence that you carry alone, though you will carry it, because I say not to mention that when you stand before your God and Savior, the agony of this sightlessness will be overwhelming. It will never be casual when you stand before him. But I want us to see the implications of before that. This is the reality. No matter what spiritual words you may speak out periodically, you never point toward truth because your life, your real disposition and attitude always negates what you say, though never in the obvious way we think it will. I have an illustration, um, and, I know, and I know this couple. It's a dedicated, godly, older couple that has, has diligently served the Lord for years. I, they, they have been uh, committed They've used every resource they have, uh, business people that, that have done well for the Lord, but it wasn't always the case. There was a portion of their life when they lived the short-sighted Christian existence. Now, during that time, their finances and prestige grew. They were invited to the elaborate parties, and, and they living close to D.C., got, got plugged in and understood it, but, but what was not growing was their witness for their Savior or their own spiritual lives. Sadly, it was a time of, of critical development in their children's lives, both physically and spiritually. And do you know the harvest they see themselves reaping now for that short-sighted blind stint? This is from their own mouth. This is not me. I'm not looking at someone's life and coming up with conjecture. This is them sharing this, and they share this because they want to prod, and in their mind, parents for, they see the fruit of hardness found in some of their children's lives. Not all of them, but some of them. Not hardness against them, 
but hearts of stone against God. And they know that every person stands responsible for God. We know that. We know that each of us answers for our deeds and our decisions, but no one wants to be the parents or anyone with pinpointable regrets over their on-purpose spiritual blindness. And, and I want that to weigh down. They would want you to understand the weight of that. You want to know a consequence of nearsightedness? Your life is spiritual deception. And that spiritual deception will have fruit that you don't control. You don't have a grip on this. You don't control that. Now, in addition to nearsightedness, and Peter weaves in both, is the possibility of feeling as blind as an unbeliever. So when he says you're nearsighted, and he says you might as well be blind, some people feel blind. What does that look like? Lack assurance of salvation. The opposite of what I just described. So you have this self-assured personality who is a believer. It's a real believer. He's not speaking of someone who's, who's a false believer, but he's speaking of the consequences that unfold There is the opportunity, sadly, that you will lack assurance of salvation, live in fear that you don't truly know your Savior, that you're outside of His glorious justification. The result of spiritual forgetfulness lacking in the supplements is possibly no assurance and no peace at all. You're in torment spiritually. You become another version of Satan's playground there. As MacArthur notes, that kind of spiritual forgetfulness leads to the repeating of old sins, and it robs such Christians of their assurance. Assurance of salvation is directly related to present spiritual service and obedience, not merely to a past salvation event made dim in the disobedient believer's memory. You will not gain assurance of salvation through remembering something in the past. And I want you to realize something. Peter is talking to believers. You're not losing your salvation. You cannot. That's secured in Christ. That's that's the premise and the principle there. But what he's driving to is that if you lack these resources, and I almost think worse than lacking assurance is the fact that you live a life of spiritual deception. How we live out our faith bears distinct results. Results that you will not be able to run from or achieve at the last minute. And I want that to weigh in. I am a great fan of procrastinating and zooping in, and I I can take care of it. I can get it at the end. And and, and in life, you can be successful in that. I know that because I have been. So it worked out well for me to do this at times. And I know a lot of our people out here are extremely gifted, and we get used to being able to fix our mess-ups at the end, to, to, to make it all right. And I want it to weigh in because that idea is a deceit that comes out. The results that we're speaking of are not things that you achieve at the last minute. Results that you cannot buy. Instead, they come from how we live for our Savior. Results driven by how we live the day-to-day of our lives. I speak of that couple. They they can't live in, in crushing guilt, and they don't. They just understand the consequence or the result of that period of their life. They serve fervently, not to make up for it, but because they know that's what they should do now. And so I I mention this because I know that some of us will have regrets, that we'll look back to pinpointable times. However, wallowing in that is not helpful. Learning from that is, and it's working for the result that God wants us to. So I kind of do that because I'm coming to this. What does this prod us towards? And I think this is Peter's examine yourself passage. He's prodding us to self-examination. What does that mean? 
I'm asking you to do one thing, push the pause button, one that goes beyond this hour and, and trickles into at least next week, but really all of life. Take a minute to think and ask a very simple question. What result will my life bring? What result will my life bring? Let's pray together. If I thank for this opportunity we have uh, to come together, we're so grateful as Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit, what a very active book he wrote, leaving uh, no detail out, but being so uh, summarized and so direct. He lets us know that we're going to face deceit. We know that. And he's giving us a clear uh, blueprint for how we address this deceit. And we begin with the foundation of our faith justified in Christ and in Christ alone. He moves from there to, to, to help us understand the one faith. Now we move to this idea that we are enabled in Christ, that, that, our, that the ability to live for Christ comes from Christ. But immediately he shifts, uh, not to, to make a different point, but again to expand on it, that, that we are enabled, but that this is not a passive faith. That God has called us to be active. That as he is justified us as he is working his sanctification and his supreme and sovereign wisdom, we are called to participate, not just casually and not in an area of glory or credit, but instead to put every ounce of effort into growing in Christ-likeness. And so a straightforward list, but then Peter is always so direct and he lets us see what the results look like. As these resources are a part of our life, we understand that we are immediately useful and fruitful for Christ. We're not waiting for a fruitfulness later on. We're not waiting to be used, but instead we recognize that God is immediately using us, that our life points to him, that our work points to him, that our responses, everything we do will ultimately drive people to him, which is what the purpose of our life is, to glorify our Lord and Savior. But when we lack these resources, the opposite is true. Our life becomes a spiritual deception. And sadly, we're so nearsighted, we might as well be blind. We stop seeing how deceptive our life has become. So Lord, as we walk and embark on life and this day, as we walk through this warning that Peter has, has been inspired to write, I ask that, that our, our minds be pricked and, and self-examination take place, not in a a, a guilt-ridden, you've taken the guilt and you've died for our sins, but instead a true reflection. And if change needs to take place and change at the deepest level of our perspective and how we see what we should be doing, I ask, Lord, that that conviction weighs on our hearts as believers, that we pinpoint those little things that we make excuses for, those little sin patterns that we repeat over and over again. Uh, we almost become blind to the fact that they're sin. And I know as I examine my own life that that becomes apparent. Those are things that, that come out that we cannot see ourselves, that we excuse in ourselves. And I know that that's evident in those here listening. And so I ask that as a, as a church, we are diligent to examine this, that we understand that we're called to be equipped believers, that we are to be growing in these resources, and that this is no casual building that we're doing, but instead... It warrants the dedication of our life to grow in these. In your precious and holy name, amen.